folks, to another edition of Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. We are on your favorite podcast platform. Wherever you get your podcast. make sure you download. Of course, you're subscribed. Rate it, review it, share it as well. And we have got a supersized edition of the show this week. Former NBA ref Bob Delaney is going to join us. Uh, Kashana Washington from Drexel University is going to be on the show as well. But we are going to start things with one of the all-time fan favorites and a perfect place to start with the junkyard dog, Jerome Williams. Jerome, always good chatting with you. And and listen, we're going to get into a bunch of different topics, and we'll also talk to you about an event that you're going to be involved in back in Toronto next week as well. So we'll get into all that over the course of the next, whatever, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Uh, again, we appreciate your time. But I wanted to hit you off the bat here, Jerome, going back to your playing days, but also looking at current day because you're a guy that's still involved in the game uh not just as an ambassador but as a coach as well and as a guy that's working with young kids and and molding young players let alone young minds and here's my jumping off point my point to this entire question Jerome the relationship between player and official it seems to have kind of reared its head more and more and more this season. And I don't know, maybe it's just a fluke, maybe it's just something in the water, but it seems like there has been a growing sort of disconnect or animosity more often than not with officials and players. And it's not like this is new, not like this hasn't happened before, it's not like it's always been kumbaya between players and referees in the NBA, let alone in pro sports in general. But do you find that it has kind of gotten a little bit worse, Jerome, or can you take me back to your playing days and just that that commonality or that, that common decency respect and how fine that line can be when dealing with officials? Well, I think it I think it really starts with uh, you know, the development of players. Um, when you don't have quality coaching at the AAU level and at the youth level um, I think it becomes a habit, a form of habit that is developed. And then once it gets all the way to the NBA, it just rears its ugly head. And I think it does come down to the mutual respect, but the kids have to be taught respect from a young age or else as they get older, they, they, they kind of bring this into the normal dialogue with the referee. And, you know, referees are human. They're going to make mistakes just like players, just like coaches, just like everybody else. Unfortunately, you know, now is when they just start to, you know, feed off of those mistakes and don't give anybody the benefit of the doubt. But at the end of the day, the man with the stripes and the whistle ultimately has the last say because he can give you a technical foul or he can throw you out the game, which in the NBA costs money, costs revenue, you know, and, you know, dilutes the game and, and causes fans to, you know, miss out on, you know, their better players or, you know, their favorite players who they paid to watch. So I really want to take it back to their origins of <laughs> where it all starts. You mm-hmm. know, coaches at a young age have to make sure when they're teaching their young players to respect the game early by showing them that they respect the game. Like I coach AAU basketball and my kids never say, hear me say anything to the referees, bad or indifferent. They make a mistake, you know, hey, we've got to play through it. That's what's going to happen in the college level. That's what's going to happen in high school. That's what's going to happen at the pro level if you ultimately get that far. So you're going to have to play through the next play. So, you know, if you, if you let yourself get out of hand with a referee, you know, you're just costing your teammates and, and the fans so, and the organization for that matter. 
Right. JY, JY, there there are some examples though at the highest level because all the kids aspire to that. Um, and and we talked about this with your teammate Alvin Williams at times too. There are there's a the respect goes both ways. And and you know our our guy Bob Delaney said when you're an official, a question needs to be answered, a statement can be um, ignored. And and there there are some examples of some of the guys because the kids aspire to the highest levels of players at the highest level that. I find them as an old school guy. I got to tell you, I find it difficult to watch because of the the constant complaining and wanting every call. If a shot's missed or the ball's turned over, it wasn't their fault. And I know it, it speaks to what you were saying with the accountability. But how do we get the respect back for the game at at the top level so that it will trickle down a bit? Because you're right. I, you know, I, I think back to your days playing at Georgetown. Big John was on you guys. He never talked to the officials. And when he did, he did it and he was in charge. You guys didn't say anything. He did the talking. And when there was a mistake, he was on you guys. And that was at, the, at, at a certain level. How do we get that respect back, JYD? Well, again, you got to kind of, you know, work backwards. I think that, you know, um, explaining to, to the youth, hey, listen, um, how much money and revenue you end up losing if you develop and massage this habit. You know, um, the game of basketball, the mental game and the mental space is a muscle that has to be developed. And part of that is being able to work through adversity. Adversity is also not just you missing a shot, you know, um, you know play being called and, and you're off. It's also when, you know, referees make calls. You have to enter that into the psyche of the player so that he understands this is all a part of the game. You know, you don't get a call. You don't get a foul. You know, while you're complaining, you know, your man is making a layup on the other end. <laughs> or that's a help side that you're not available for because you took the time to, you know, put your hands up instead of running and sprinting back. These are the kind of things you got to teach a player so that you can start to reverse the activities that are going on today. Jerome, I don't know if this is a, a, a fair angle to take on this, so, so, so check me if I'm wrong here. Did you often find that you would be victim of a closer eye from the officials because you made yourself sort of stand out more than others? You weren't a guy that was necessarily – barking at the officials pun intended but you were barking at the crowd and you were you were you were hyping up the crowd and you were hyping up your teammates and you were a high energy guy and you were active and involved in kind of high energy and could that rub an official the wrong way if they felt that you were maybe showing them up by hyping up the crowd or how demonstrative demonstrative you might be towards a call pro or con a bucket pro or con in terms of just your body language your energy on the floor well, I was very conscious of that, and I was conscious of my brand. If that was my brand, which still is today, um, I was I was I was full aware of what my um, abilities were within the arena, within the space that I was working. So, for me to use that against the official would ultimately work against me in the long run. 
And I just knew that as a player, knew that as a business person. So at the end of the day, the officials knew I respected them enough not to do that and not to turn on them or turn the crowd per se on them. The crowd is going to, the crowd is going to view what they view and see what they see and react accordingly. I was never going to use my power to enhance that because then that could work against me and the crowd. Cause I knew ultimately they made the final call. So I'm not trying to do anything <laughs> to, uh, you know, to get that call turned against me. You know, because ultimately a lot of calls can go either way. They can go one way or they can go the other way. So, you know, at the end of the day, I just, you know, I just got to live with the results of whatever way they swing. JY, we've talked to officials about um, kind of the new age of technology and, and the way the game's being officiated and looked at because of the technology. How do you view that as a as a how would you view that as a player in this age? I know you didn't play in this with all the replays and reviews and stuff and game was probably a little bit more physical in in your day, but how do you think that impacts all of it the fact that we have this technology and everybody wants to look at things and everything needs to be reviewed and you know I, Eric and I laugh because uh, what what they're reviewing for flagrant ones right now, back in your day, was you just look at the guy and say, come on, man, get up, play on. Um, how do you think the technology impacts everything, Jerome? Well, I think it just slows everything down. It gives everybody a chance to go get more popcorn and, and order another Coke, <laughs> another soda on the side, whatever your favorite beverage is. You know, you get to you know tweet about something while they're reviewing the tapes. Um, these are all things. That, that, that basically are, are the reasons why, you know, uh, things are the way they are now. Um, I think that that's how technology has impacted the game. I think it just slows it down and, you know, creates more opportunity for more sponsorship selling and, and timeouts and, and, <laughs> and everything else. But at the end of the day, I think at, you know, certain times of the game, it's better because you can get things right. You can um, have the opportunity to review it so that it doesn't impact in a, in a win or a loss for a team that is undeserving. So um, I, I don't have really a problem with it myself. I think that, you know, it can get a little overdrawn too much, but um, that can be cleaned up. But I think at the end of the day, when, you know, a game can go either way and it's a one-point, two-point game and there's a call made and they go review it and get the correct uh, call on it, I think that that's better for the game. Speaking with Jerome Williams, the Junkyard Dog, of course, one of the all-time fan favorites in Raptor history, and he's going to be back in Toronto Mm -hmm. next week for the fourth annual West Park Tournament of Stars Celebrity Basketball Event. It's in support of West Park Healthcare Center. It's on March 24th and 25th, so again, it's next week. Uh, the draft party, the celebrity draft party, goes on the Friday night, and then the tournament itself and the games on Saturday. It's not just Jerome Williams, but uh, some of the uh, former NBAers that will be taking part, Baron Davis, Corey Maggette, Katino Mobley, Eddie Curry, Glenn Davis, Jamario Moon, another former Raptor, Jose Calderon, Josh Childress, Matt Bonner, Meta World Peace, Quentin Richardson, Mo Pete, Morris Peterson, who joined us on our show a couple of weeks ago, Ricky Davis, uh, and much more, much more. So, again, that is coming up next week, the fourth annual West Park Tournament of Stars 
celebrity basketball event. Jerome, we've asked you this many times in the past, but I'm going to ask it again for folks that, that might have missed it or something. All-time fan favorite, one of the all-time fan favorites, coming back to Toronto. You've come back to this city many, many times, probably hundreds of times since your playing days. What is it that you think of most or the memory or memories that pop into your brain most when you think about your time as a Raptor wearing that jersey and coming back to the city? Man, I think of my good time on uh, the playoffs, you know, game six in Toronto, dunking on Dikembe Mutombo, my Georgetown alumni brother, you know, Mount Mutombo, who was defensive player of the year, three years in a row, Hall of Famer. Um, I think that's one of my fondest memories because of how much, you know, trash talking he, he talked during the summers um, at Georgetown, training and working out and the finger wagging in my face. So the dog pound lived that night was was barking loud in Toronto, and he wasn't over, he wasn't able to overcome that. That was just too much dog pound action, and we went on to win and go to push to Game Seven. Um, so that was probably my fondest memory I think of of uh, my time in Toronto. JY, did you you were with a, you were a kind of a young vet on some of those teams? And there were some veteran players. Who was the vet that you looked up to? You know, we had this discussion here about the referees. Who was the guy that you kind of felt you could always go and talk to? He gave good leadership. He might be the guy that say, hey, man, we got to lay off the refs. Uh, who were some of the, the guys that you looked up to at that time when you were here? Oh, man, I think, you know, just looking at it from outside, you know, you got Antonio Davis and Charles Oakley. And Charles used to get into it with refs, but a lot of times he just kept his mouth closed too. Um, and but Antonio Davis, he was a silent assassin. He was never getting technical fouls, really very rare when he did. Um, and he was all business. Uh, both of those guys, both of those guys are business, and that's and that's what that's what you wanted from your veteran because you wanted um, the the rest of the players to fall in line. And if you have strong leadership at the top um, and, and people who are focused and going out there to play hard and win every night, then you got a, you got a great chance. And those guys were winners. They weren't, they weren't backing down from anybody. Speaking with Jerome Williams, Jerome, I got to tell you my, my, my best story that, or my best memory, and it's been one that's been told many times. When I think of you, it's, it goes to your very first game. I mean, that, that's trade, is, baby, the trade, the trade. The trade, yeah. hopping in the hopping in the truck and driving down the 401 and getting there through a snowstorm, whatever. I mean, to me, that's one of those stories that as the years go on, it's like the legend grows. Oh, there's, the storm was three feet of snow, and I had chains <laughs> on my tires, and, and the window was cracked, so I had to drive with the window down and my head out the window, and, and I, I was driving barefoot with no shoes on. Like, I mean, it's like added layers just get stuck on this thing. But, I mean, that was to me what just – uh, I think enamored fans with you right away. Put put aside the the energy and the personality. It was the fact that this dude hopped in his car and just got here asap. There was no there was no private jet. There was no like taking your time. Is like no, I want to be here and I want to be a part of this. And I think that just kind of set the tone for your time from the jump. That was man. That was that was a great time and it was a great decision. I think that you know my heart was in the right place and I and I wanted to just get there and, and you know be with the new team i didn't know how to react to being traded and my first instinct was not to miss practice so 
um, that was a good decision. I didn't know it was going to be a snowstorm, so it was <laughs> it was uh, not three feet, but it was about two. It was about two feet. <laughs> but it was it was it was a uh, it was a long drive um, because of the snow. Um, but you know, uh, it, I got there and I got to practice and. You know, and, and the team respected that. They respected the fact that, you know, hey, here's a guy who, you know, <laughs> you know, got in his car and drove after the trade like that. That that let the team know I'm I'm serious about my work. You don't have to talk about it. You know, you, you showed through your actions and um the fans showed me appreciation for that decision. Um and I would have made it again, you know, 'cause that that I was I was excited and uh you know, and that's that's how you react to, you know, when you're when you're traded because you got pain on one side. Um, you know, leaving a city like Detroit, where my dog pound was originated, and going to a new city. Um, old school values, Jy, uh, and and uh, again, you know, I, I hate to sound like the old man hashtag get off my lawn, but I, I see some of I see some of those old school values being eroded at times. Uh, in 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 this day and age, probably because of guys like yourself, and you talked about Oakley and Antonio Davis that put the hard work in, and and now, you know, they always say that the uh, the 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 trailblazers, you know, get the hardship, and and the followers get the rewards. And I look <laughs> at I look at somebody like yourself, like all of this money is be- from guys in a different era, the old school values. We need to me, Jerome. We need to bring some of those back, and that comes with holding people accountable at times. Yeah, it does. You got to hold people accountable. Um, you know, um, the 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 greatest the greatest thing that you could do, showing respect for the game, is respecting the people that were there before you. So that was what I stepped on the court with on a nightly basis. It was just you know, hey, you know, these guys, Doctor J. You know, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, um, you know, guys guys I looked up to um, prior to Michael Jordan taking over the whole entire league and really taking it to even greater heights than those guys. Um, you know, I just respected all those guys. And how I show them respect is just respect the game and make sure it's available and, and uh, um, you know, um, accessible to the next generation. Jerome, last one for me here. Um, we often ask this question, especially with the, you know, when we have guys come on, former players. Is there a guy right now, you watch the game a lot, you're still involved. I saw you in, in, in Salt Lake City at, the, at All-Star Festivities. Is there a guy that you look at and say either A, he reminds me of me, or at the very least B, I just enjoy this guy's game. I mean, obviously, we can name the stars and the big names and whatnot. Who doesn't enjoy watching the superstars? But is there somebody that you look at and say, that's the type of dude that I would love to play with, or that's the kind of guy I'd pay money for because I love the way he plays and approaches the game? Man, you know Vanderbilt from the Lakers? You know, that Mm. kid right there is um, very high energy, defensive-oriented, been on a couple of teams and every team he's gone to their defensive rating has improved also the other kid the rookie from um, OKC Williams Jay Williams the starter heat man his defense and his athleticism um, all around is just 
high energy and, and I like the way he plays. So those two guys, man, I'm paying I'm paying to watch. Now other than that, when I look at the stars, Greek freak. I mean the dude is just rebounding, he's doing all everything. He's in all, every box box score stat sheet and you know, that's what you you, you know, you ultimately pay to see. Um he's not the most gifted or skilled, but he's just smash mouth and just playing and he's gonna he's gonna give you all he got every night. A, so those are my guys answer, man. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's a great answer. <laughs> great answer. I'll tell you what, I actually just finished reading like literally 20 minutes before bringing you on here, uh, to your point about, and you just said it almost word for word, that he doesn't necessarily have the, the, the same talent level as other guys, but it's the work ethic. And he, he this is a direct quote from him via The Athletic. This was, just came out today in the last few hours. He said, quote, I'm not as talented as Steph. I'm not as talented as KD. I'm effing desperate. I'm obsessed. I'm so effing I, he, he said, so I effing work as hard as I can because I don't want to lose this blank. And, like, that to me, like, we're talking about an MVP and a champion being driven by the fear of losing everything he has by, 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 by not being considered one of the greatest, so he still works his backside off. That's you got to respect that. Yeah, and he was walking to practice every day because he sent all his money back home because he didn't have a car. He didn't save enough money for a car, so, like, you know. That's grit, man. That's that's you know you can't you can't create that. That's got to become something that comes from within. And uh, you know I'm paying to see KD and I'm paying to see Steph because I used to be Steph's rebounder, and KD's from my hometown, so you know we got we got ties. But they're, they're very talented individuals, very gifted and talented individuals. JY, we've had Eric and I have had this conversation. This is the last one for me. Um, when it comes to awards, and we're just talking about Giannis here, and I think there is voter fatigue with Giannis. Uh, he's entering that status like uh, 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 the best player in the game alongside a, a guy like LeBron in years past, or uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, a Jordan of his Jokic. time in that sense. Yeah. You know, Jokic. Who who's your MVP right now? When you look at both sides of the ball and an all-round. I mean, the MVP doesn't impact the game on just one side. And I have a problem with people looking strictly at numbers and stats and basing their MVP on that rather than just rather than using the eye test as well as to how the guy impacts the game at the other end of the floor. Who's your MVP right now? Yeah, my MVP right now is definitely Joker um, mm. because take that kid off that team. You know they're 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 not even in the ballpark of where they are right now. Um, he's such a he's a he's a juggernaut, you know, in terms of what he brings to that to the table on both all ends and all aspects of the game. Uh, he makes the game tremendously easier for his his coaching staff, his teammates, and that's not me talking. That's that's them. I've I've talked to their staff, and you know. Uh, Mike Malone coached me in New York when I was with the Knicks. So um, just listening to him, what he's had to say about him, um, you know, that, you know, MVPs come to work every day. A lot of their work is unseen. Um, that's the way Joker 
kind of does his does his uh, every day, and he's so nonchalant with him. I talked to him at All Star Weekend, and he's just like whatever. Like you know, he was the last man picked <laughs> in the All Star game, you know, draft, and it's like uh, one of the last, not not the last, but one of the last. And it's just like <laughs> he ain't care. He's like whatever. Um, you know, those are the kind of things you're like, man, this dude, he's he look different. So yeah. Um, I, 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 he would get my vote. He would get my vote because, yeah, I want a guy that's going to be easy to play with. He reminds me of Arenas Sabonis when I was playing. He was playing for Portland Trailblazers overseas. Cat mm-hmm. just made the game easier for those guys. And I was like, man, the passes he was throwing, it was like, jeez, you know, you're seven feet tall making these passes. And, and that's where I see Joker right now. When I see him, um, I enjoy watching him play. Well, maybe we'll see uh, Jerome Williams throwing some of those passes next week at the fourth annual West Park Tournament of Stars Celebrity Basketball event in support of West Park Healthcare Center. Jerome, we'll look oh, forward you to seeing you in town. Me throwing those passes, Eric. Eric <laughs> you will see me throwing those passes. Getting ready to go down. The guys that you know, I, I, a huge shout out to all the incoming stars that are coming. My man Corey Maggetti and Catino. Those are my teammates from the Big Three. And, Ricky Davis, you know, pretty Ricky is what they call him. You got Big Baby and, you know, you know, got Metal World Peace. Me, me, we formerly Ron Artest, we used to go to battle. They're all coming in town. But here's the thing. They're going to have to deal with the dog pound. You know, my former teammate Morris Peterson knows all about it. And, and all of the participants is for a great cause because, the champion of stars, you know, we, we, we do what we do because of, you know, what they do and the hospital that have helps to recover people from, you know, trauma injuries and, and, and get back on their feet. So we're going to have a good time next weekend, tournament of stars. Hope, hope everybody gets a ticket. It's going to be sold out. You know, dog times already heard about it. So they're going to be there. So, Eric, I expect you to be there. Paulie, I want you to be there and make sure you guys have the microphone to interview the losing team because that's, that's who needs to be talking to. <laughs> you need to talk to the losing team just, you know, and, and, and because there really won't be any losers ultimately because it's first such a great call. <laughs> Thanks, Jerome. All right, JY. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate you. Jonesy, always great chatting with former Toronto Raptor, one of the all-time fan favorites, Jerome Williams. And we will now quickly switch gears as we move on from JYD to one of the all-time greats. And maybe her path, she didn't think it would lead this way. We're going to get into it right now with Kashana Washington. Kishana, I want to take you back like five years ago because I was watching in preparation for this interview. I, I found a little clip of you with the Team Ontario jersey on. And, you know, a, a, a quieter, not quiet, but quieter young woman who was very humble about her game, uh, talking about your strengths and your weaknesses and whatnot. And then you fast forward five years later to a collegiate career that is coming to an end, but a very decorated collegiate career, one that has you among the best of the best in scoring in the NCAA, let alone at Drexel specifically. Did you even have a glimpse of a thought of what your life might look like? If you kind of could rewind back to then and to, to, to think about future Kashana and where you stand right now and the type of player and, and person you've become? Um, to be honest, no. I, I never thought I would be in the position that I'm in right now. Um, 
being a number one scorer is definitely not, or number two scorer was definitely not, you know, top of my mind considering coming into college, I didn't consider myself a scorer. So um, I definitely have to give credit to my coaching staff for, you know, pushing me in that area and, and helping me, you know, get those skills out and, and um, just put them out on the floor. So credit to them and then credit to my teammates for, for uh, helping me, um, finding me and, and giving me the confidence to, to be the scorer that I am today. Kishana, where does that come from? Um, because, you know, Eric and I always, and I always say this as a coach too, uh, give me that kid that's a defensive player or a good team player willing to sacrifice, set screens, move the ball, uh, you know, dive on the floor and, and, and kind of have the attitude, whatever it takes, coach, I'll do it. And I'll get in the gym with that person and work on their offense and, and I'll, I'll have a complete player before anybody that has somebody that can drop 20 or 30 every night. How much do you see yourself in that vein? I, you know, like you just said, I didn't think I was a scorer, but wow, here I am. Uh, yeah, I think how I think of myself, like aside from a scorer. Yeah, were, I mean, were you one of those kids? Uh, hey, coach, whatever you need, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. I was definitely more of a facilitator, kind of did, uh, you know, the, the assisting, the rebounding. Um, I, I played defense, um, and I, I would score, you know, when I when I had to, you know, when I when the opportunity was there, I would score. I wouldn't pass up a shot or anything like that. But I was definitely more of a facilitator on the floor, just kind of executing whatever my coaches, you know, wanted to run. Um, so that scoring kind of came over time and, and throughout college for sure. Kishana, I could probably just step back and let you and Paul have the rest of the conversation on the question I'm about <laughs> to bring up here. Um, but studying sports psychology, and I know that's something that, that Jonesy studied as well going back to his day. Um, if we can move away from the court for a second, I want, you know, we can get back to the on the court and the X's and O's and everything else and, and talk about the playing, but I'm interested in your perspective again as a, as a, as a person, as a student, let alone as an athlete, what it's been like the last few years. Uh, I mean, this is a conversation we'll probably have for decades and generations to come about the impact of the pandemic, but the impact of the pandemic on a young athlete, on an athlete living in a different city in a different country, on a young athlete and student who is studying, as I say, sports psychology, you must have a unique perspective in terms of what these last few years have been like in terms of trying to navigate it in your own space, in your own world specifically. Um, yeah, I mean, you brought up COVID, which was definitely a, a tough time, not only for me, but my teammates, for, for every athlete around the country. So I think navigating that was, was difficult, but you had to find um, a balance between school, which I had to do online because of COVID. So that was a, another challenge in itself, you know, not being in class and trying to find the motivation to, to, to be in class online virtually. Um, and then, you know, basketball is taken away from us temporarily. So then that was another struggle, um, you know, finding ways to still be active and, and work out, you know, amidst a, a pandemic that's going on. Um, so I think from a psychology perspective, I think it was just, I think it was a mental battle for everyone. But um, for myself personally, I had people around me. I had my family, my, my coaches, my teammates that, that really helped me through that. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for them for sure. Um, and then I think character-wise, you know, I think it it helps show you how strong you are when something that you love so much is taken away from you. Um, so I think just finding ways to 
keep myself mentally strong was, um, you know, a, a difficult thing, but something that, you know, I figured out over time. Kishana and Eric's right. I mean, being a guy that's, you know, I'm a, you know, got a degree in sports psychology. What's it like now that you're back with the team and you guys have come through that and, you know, you're, you're reaching for, for new heights and new goals. And have you seen, uh, what have you seen from your team? What have you seen as the impact of this as you guys move forward? The impact of the pandemic or? Yeah, pandemic and the reassembling, uh, you know, kind of getting back to some state of normal as, as, we, as, we, as we come out of it. Um, I think it's definitely taught us to be grateful for every opportunity that we have to step on the floor together. Um, so I think we never take those moments uh, for granted. I think for myself personally, being a senior now, um, and kind of having my last of everything, I, I definitely um, don't take those moments for granted. And I am grateful for every moment that I do get to spend with them. So, I mean, I think it's helped us grow even closer together because we're far apart for, you know, six, seven months. So I think it's really just made us closer and, and gelled better, which helped us on the court. Kishana, growing up in, in Pickering, um, you know, I referenced watching the, uh, a couple of those videos and doing some reading up on you before chatting with you. You mentioned, you know, soccer was the sport you were initially thrown into, but you didn't really like it. Your dad got you into basketball. But as a, as a young Canadian player, um, just as a young Canadian fan, am I wrong to assume that it would be the Raptors that kind of helped spark things first for you? Or was there another team, another player? Like what kind of drew you to the sport and the ultimate passion that unfolded in the in the in the years to come uh, well i did watch the raptors growing up but i think uh, my passion for basketball i'd have to attribute to my dad um when i first started playing he was playing in a in a league um every wednesday night and he would take me to the gym and while he was playing running up and down i would be on the side courts kind of running up and down with them so I think that's really where the passion started, and um, my dad kind of identified pretty quickly that I, I had strong skill set. So from there, we just kind of worked at it, um, and then we'd have games on on the TV all the time. Not necessarily the Raptors, but just any games, college, NBA, WNBA. So I think from there, from a really young age, my passion um, for it grew, and my dad um, definitely helped develop my skill set for sure. It's it's that time of year, Kishana. Who who do you like? Let's start with the women's tournament. Like, what what will you be watching most, and who who do you like when it's all said and done? Um. Well, I'm definitely going to be rooting for all of my fellow Canadians, um, some of my teammates, past teammates that I've played with on on their respective teams. I'll be rooting for them. Um, so I don't have anyone in particular, but definitely just rooting for, for all the Canadian women out there. When you talk about Canadian women as well, this is kind of going back to a couple of minutes ago where we talked about just the evolution of your game and the rise of your game and where you stand now. Is it one of those sort of pinch-me surreal moments to talk about the all-time leading score among Canadian women, like period? Is, that's, that's, that's not a mountaintop I, I imagine too many people are thinking about as a young player, let alone to actually see it come to fruition. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy, um, especially knowing the, the talent that's in Canada. Um, 
for women. So just thinking about myself being at the top of that list uh, amongst a very great group of players is, is pretty surreal. So definitely um, proud of myself for, for accomplishing that feat for sure. Kishan, if you had your choice uh, once school was done and you, uh, you know, you stopped playing, where, where would you go next? Would you, uh, would you go professionally somewhere overseas or internationally? Would you uh, like to get into coaching? Uh, would you like to work with a professional team uh, or anything else that I didn't put in that list? What, what's next for you and what would you like to do next? Um, what's next is uh, professional, uh, wherever that may take me. I'm kind of just going with the flow right now and, and seeing what opportunities are presented to me. Um, but I think uh, pro is, is in the cards for me next. Um, and then after that, when my playing career is over, I'd like to be involved in sports and whatever aspect that may be, whether it's coaching, working for a team in, in another aspect. Um, I'd just like to stay involved with with the sport and, and give back to the people that gave me so many opportunities. You know, I'm going to ask you this question as well, just more as a, as a fan, more your opinion. This is something that Jones and I have talked about many times over the years, Kishana, not just recently, uh, even though it's kind of a, a fairly recent story with the WNBA bringing uh, an exhibition game um, to, to Canada, to Toronto specifically coming up in May. It's already sold out. We've been saying for years that we think it would be an absolute monstrous success to have a team in Toronto, let alone in other parts of Canada. Uh, I've got to assume the league will eventually expand there, but what's your reaction to that, your thought on that, and, and the growth of the game and the growth of the sport among all individuals in this country and and you know boys girls no no matter whomever they may be just the growth of the sport uh since you know since you were a youngster and and the passion that seems to be building and building for the sport more and more with every year that passes well i think it's great that uh toronto is holding that game and you know i knew it would sell out pretty quickly um and i'm happy that it did um so that more eyes can be seen on on women's sport in the WNBA in particular um so that's definitely exciting. And then as for the growth of, of the sport, uh, I'm going to talk about women's basketball in particular. Um, I think it's, it's ever evolving. I think there, there are a lot of people that are um, very skilled that are, are being seen more, especially Canadian women um, that are being seen nationally. Um, so I think that's growing. I think the WNBA is growing. I think they're getting more viewers. I think, you know, we're making the right steps to, to put women's basketball um, out there more. So that's definitely something I'm proud of as a um, Canadian woman, um, to, just to see the growth that we've, we've been making over the years. Well, Kishana, we appreciate you joining us today, and uh, best of luck for, for whatever that next step may be for you, and we look forward to watching the journey. All the best. Thanks, Kishana. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. That was Drexel guard Canadian Kashana Washington. We're going to step aside for a break, but when we come back, folks, you want to keep it tuned in to Smith & Jones because we have a fantastic guest joining us, and I know he's going to be full of stories. He's joined us many times in the past in his previous life, let alone his career as an NBA official, is well worth listening to on a number of levels. Uh, we will be joined next by Bob Delaney on Smith & Jones. 
Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts. And, hey, share it as well. Tell other folks about the show. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. We are on all of your favorite podcast platforms with fresh content every week right here on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and, of course, in those various podcast worlds. Joining us on the show right now, I always love chatting with this guy. In fact, I would probably, Jonesy, hook up with this guy every single week on the show and have a conversation about life, let alone about sports, about the NBA. We bring into the conversation former NBA ref and former uh, law enforcement officer, former undercover officer. I mean, the, the, the list, the resume is long. Bob Delaney. Bob, it's uh, been too long, and we appreciate you joining us. And, and listen, with due respect to, to Bob being on the line, but for folks that don't know, and you should know, go do your homework, but I'll do a little bit for you right now. NBA career started in 1987, over 1,700 games, 160 playoff games, nine finals, so maybe none better to speak to about officiating and the state of the game, perhaps, than Bob Delaney. And Bob, uh, listen, we would have loved to have had you on Seven days ago, ten days ago, but it seems like any day you could talk about officiating, pro or con. I'm sure, as a fan of the game, just as a as a as, as a basketball fan in general, you've kind of seen some of the headlines and whatnot that's happened uh, over the last week or so, especially as it relates to the Raptors and Fred Van Vliet and Ben Taylor and Van Vliet being very candid with his comments and whatnot. I'm sure you've been through this over your illustrious career as well. In a very long-winded way here, Bob, I'm asking you. Where do you kind of stand on player-official relationship and maybe specifically player-official relationship in today's game compared to where it was even 5, 10, 20 years ago? It seems like it's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more animosity, a lot more angst these days than ever before. Uh, Eric Jonesy, so good to be with you guys. I, I, I miss seeing you, uh, being out on that floor. And uh, our man Jack always uh, have an insight to the game as well when I would be in Toronto. But um, uh, Chuck Daly gave me some great advice my rookie year. I ran into him down the Jersey Shore. And, you know, you're not, you know, you're so paranoid that I don't know if I'm supposed to acknowledge him. No, I mean, it's, it's Chuck Daly, <laughs> you know, in my mind. And um, he was with his wife and um, I was with mine and, and he bought a drink and we started talking and, he said to me, you know, I've had you a few games, and I think you're going to be a good referee in the league. He said, can I give you some advice? I said, sure, Coach. He said, you got to learn how to not hear things. He says, you got to be capable yeah. to be deaf at times. He said, you're the kind of guy that wants to pick up every piece of paper on the floor. And he said, that's pretty good, but you don't need to get every piece of paper off the floor in order for it to be clean. And it was a great advice because he said to me, he said, you know, my players aren't all – happy with every decision I make. But if I acknowledge when they say something under their breath or come out of the game, I have to, if I react to it and acknowledge it, I have to then deal with it. He said, but if I just keep walking and I make like I didn't hear them, and he said, I practice this. It, more often than not, it yeah. just floats away. And so mm. think about how Chuck Daly taking uh, Lambeer out or, or uh, John Stout or somebody coming out of that game or Isaiah not thinking it's the time. What the frick are you doing? What the hell are you doing? He just yeah. let it go. And, and yeah. now if it's a confrontation, right, it's different. But that kind of thing, let go. And I always kept that in my mind. is like you don't have to hear everything. 
And what I share with officials is that you truly become a professional official. And I believe we are all professional officials, not just those that work professional athletes, pro athletes. We all have an expectation for professionalism. Is That comes when you understand how to interact with the will to win. The will to win is what's coming at you. And when you're able to navigate that and be able to calm the waters, then those are um, that's, that's at the highest level of officiating. And, um, you know, I would, I would say that the, over the years, the interactions that I had when I was a younger official, I wanted to prove I was right. I wanted to be uh, able to be able to um, stand up for my calls and show strengths and all those kinds of things that you have internally. And as you, you go longer in the profession, you, you become more vulnerable. You become more realistic. You become uh, – it's easier to say, I kick the call. My bad. Uh, you're able to have interactions with folks that are in highly emotional states that, and help them calm down. And so I think that it, you know, there's three stages to an officiating career. It's believability, credibility, and trust. And what I mean by that is you have to be believable as an official when you walk out on the floor. And then if you do it, things well night in and night out, there's a credibility that comes to you from coaches, from uh, players, from the media, from fans. And then there comes a level of trust. For example, I'll just go old school a little bit here. Danny Crawford. When Danny Crawford worked, walked out on the floor, there was a trust that took place because even if he missed the first call, you knew he was not going to miss more than that. And so a trust level came as a result of a long career of people gaining that trust. And I think that takes place in every one of our careers. So um, interactions with players and um, I've been asked this as well uh, with other folks that I've spoken with. I think we're at a different spot in our society as well, right? Because of Twitter, because of all the social media, everyone thinks they have a voice. And so voices are um, shared very freely. And that's by players, that's by coaches, uh, fans. Uh, and so I think that it's a different spot of how to navigate this. But it's, it's an ongoing um, message that has to be reiterated. Those who are in authority positions have to display proper authority behavior at all times. My law enforcement background, I bring to officiating. I I was very fortunate to have a senior trooper in New Jersey that schooled me, that that drilled into my head, that just because you have a uniform and a badge doesn't mean you get to be disrespectful or demeaning. And I bring that to uh, the officials. I brought it to my officiating career. Just because you have authority, doesn't mean you get to be disrespectful or demeaning. And you will truly know when you're a professional when after you um, give a ticket or arrest someone or issue a technical file, they say thank you. (laughs) As silly as that sounds. They're not saying thank you for what you did. They're saying thank you for how you did it. And so I think our interactions with each other, especially those that have authority, has to be one of approach to calm the waters. And then if the waters do not calm, 
then you take that next step of whether it's an ejection, a technical foul, whatever it takes place. So I hope I gave you some some thoughts of um, of how I approach it and, and, and how I uh, share it with other officials. Uh, Bob and and um, yeah, it, it, it. I mean, I'm from a, a, Eric and I. Well, more so me. Uh, I'm I'm closer to your vintage than he is, and I think about some of the old school referees, the guys that yourself. You mentioned Danny Crawford. I think about uh, Dick Bavetta, um, uh, Monty when he was officiating. Uh, was probably the last of a certain group because you're right, society has changed. And I, I, I look at it where you guys were able to, as you say, diffuse and create some time because my, my line is you can't legislate the emotion out of the game. And how, how would you in your position as develop, a, a de- developmental person around officiating teach them to go into these interactions? Fred Van Vliet took a very measured um, discussion, a very measured statement about his interaction with Ben Taylor and citing the fact that most of his technical fouls have been called by Ben Taylor and the crew he's been on, and he felt it was personal. And, you know, the late I watched the late Tony Brown one night in San Antonio uh, have Tim Duncan go up and down him as Tim rarely opens his mouth, but Tim went up and down and Tony looked at him and smiled, and, I, and we, we ran into Tony leaving the arena. He said, I just had to let him vent. Bob, what would your right. advice be right. to, to these young officials that are in that first phase of their career where they have to be right? Well, I, I think that there's life skills that come, and those life skills you bring out onto the floor. So as you guys have alluded to, my background was in law enforcement, um, you know, Steve Javi was in sales. Uh, Tony Brown worked for Delta Airlines uh, as, as, you know, so interactions with people. And so it, it, it's a human interaction that's taking place. It's no longer um, referee and player, referee, coach. It's, it's, it's a human interaction. And how do you calm things down in situations when you are in a non competitive setting um try and use those same kind of skills i think working on those skills working on body language working and and looking in a mirror and 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 practicing because confrontation is part of officiating that's just part of what it is so how are you going to interact with it you know people always talk about the block charge being the hardest thing that's not really difficult the hard part is how are you interacting with coaches and, and players? That is an ongoing skill that you learn from other officials and you have conversations about it. But it's also truly life lessons and life skills. And um, I've had situations where I've not been happy about how I acted afterwards and, and, and shared that with, with a coach. We said, you know, last time we were together, it didn't go right. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in that game etch a sketch, and, and again, Jonesy Eric maybe too young to remember it. But no, 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 I, no, I, yeah. I had one. I had one. I had one. Yeah, yeah. What I always say is that you know, no matter what goes on in life, think about etch a sketch. You turn it over, you shake it, and now it's a clean slate. 
And that's mm. how I would interact with players and coaches. It's got to be a clean slate. It's not angry at you. It's, 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 the, it's the emotion of the game. And as you said, Josie, you don't want to get the emotion. Motion is the beauty of our game. That emotional outlet and, and the poetry in motion as it's taking place with the athleticism, allow that to take place. So I, 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 um, I think that um, what's interesting is that each era has another level of conversation about officiating. Mm-hmm. And uh, years ago, it used to be about officials not being in shape. Well, that's, that's an irritant that's gone. You very, very you rarely see a, a, a referee uh, at any level out of shape, and so uh, all these different kinds of things that come up. It's now uh, how do we interact? And back in the day, you know, you could have a go round with a player, and nothing was ever said of it. You know. You may run each, into each other at the airport or run into each other uh, at the restaurant. And it, it's a wink and a nod that takes place. Good seeing you. There's no, no, no holding on to what takes place on the floor. Yeah, you guys remember my hair uh, was more like a helmet than a hair, hair style <laughs> because it was sprayed down and so much um, uh, gel in there. Well, I remember walking back after kicking a call. I mean, I messed up a call at the end of a Nick uh, Miami Heat game down in Miami that cost the Knicks the game. I I wiped out an Allen Houston uh, shot at the end of the game that would have had the Knicks winning, but we didn't have replay back then, and we didn't have all those lights around, uh, you know, around the backboard. Anyway, as we're in the back, I'm walking to the locker room. Patrick Ewing comes up and messes my hair up like we're in eighth grade. And so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the interaction with the players. And, and I think it's because there was a trust level. They, they know you're not, you're not trying to hurt anybody. You're trying to get calls right. But you have that relationship that has developed over years. And, and just to finish that story, um, so, you know, it caused for the Knicks – I forget what year it was, you know, late 90s or something. It caused for the Knicks not to be home court in, in the playoffs because it was a game on an Easter Sunday uh, when, I, when I wiped out that Allen Houston basket. And it just happened to be that the first round of the playoffs, Indiana and the Knicks are playing. I have the game in Indiana, and Spike is there. And he's yelling at me, we should be in New York, your call. I mean, he is beating me up one side <laughs> and down the other. <laughs> And I walked over to Spike and I said, hey, Spike, I've seen every one of your movies. And they ain't all hits either, brother. <laughs> uh, Bob, April 14th, 1998. I just I, I just looked it up that's while the, you were talking. Yep. That's yep. the game. Yep. An 82-81 loss. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. As, and, and, and the headline, the headline on the article on CBS News says, Knicks lose on bad call again. <laughs> um, Bob, l- l- let me ask you this. I assume it's different for every official to some degree. There's, There's got to be obviously a, a, a blueprint to some extent. There have to be certain triggers that are that are universal to some extent. But at the same time, then there are, I'm sure, you know, personalized, individualized trigger words or situational uh, things that happen. What was it for you that, that was like, okay, you've crossed the line? Like, obviously, drawing contact, obviously getting physical, that's a no-brainer. But 
like we got to be careful here, I guess. Keep it PG, or we got to get the 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 the, uh, the bleep button ready. But was it okay if I said BS to you? But if I dropped an F bomb, like like what what was your line? Where if I if I got to the line, I was okay, and you were willing to give me a leash. But if you crossed that line, boom, you're getting teed up, and you might even be getting tossed. What was it for you? Yeah, I I think that. It- what you said at the beginning that um, when it comes to interactions with players uh, uh, and, and if it's player to player in a physical manner or threatening, um, I was never a believer that you, if somebody's threatening, threatening someone, I'm going to get you next time and, and take your head off that kind of thing. Well, I'm not going to wait around to see if he does it. Uh, that's the kind of thing that can get you out of the game. But when it came to interactions with me, or, or with referees, I believe that if things are words are used as adjectives, I'm okay with it. If it's used as a noun, uh, I think we have problems, and maybe we got to go back to school and start diagramming sentences to really know what we're talking about here. But um, you know, if you're you're using a word as an adjective, we're all adults here. I mean, it's competitive, it's emotional. It, 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 I don't think a word has never really hurt anyone uh, physically. So it's not like damaging, but if you're using it in a disrespectful way. So I believe there's a respect for the game. It's a privilege to play uh, this great game. It's not a right. And if you're being disrespectful, I'll give you a story. I I nominated uh, Hugh Evans for the Hall of Fame, and, and God bless, he was inducted last year. I went to the Final Four with him where he was announced. And you was in failing health and uh, passed before the induction took place in September. But Hubert was a mentor. And if you guys remember Hugh Evans, uh, there was such an aura about him when he walked out on the floor, man. And uh, he was not going to go handshake and and politic or or do any of that smiling stuff off on the sidelines. He stood at center court and it was amazing how many people came up to him and acknowledged him and then walked away. But Hubert said to me one time, we're talking about flagrant fouls, and um, we're having a drink after the game. He says to me, we're just back when we're only refereeing two referees, right? Uh, So I'm a young uh, referee, and he's he's the crew chief, and we're sitting down having a drink after the game, and he said, tell me about flagrant fouls, young fellow. And I I start quoting the rule book. And he says to me, no, no, no. How, How do you know there's a flagrant foul out there? He said, I'm going to tell you something. It's in your gut. You know. He said, because you've been around this game. I've played the game. You've played the game. We've all been around this game. He said, when you say to yourself, when an action takes place, that's BS. That's a flagrant one. But if you say to yourself, that's freaking BS, that's a flagrant two. And you could you, you could imagine the words that Hubert used in sharing it with me that yes. has a little more of an impact. <laughs> and, but he was making the point. It's it's something that stands out. It stands out. Technical fouls usually call themselves. It's not your decision. It's the actions that have taken place by a player or coach that have caused for it. Bob, uh, man, there's so many different directions we can go in. The, the game has changed. You know, you talked about the call that you missed in, in that game. We have replay now. We have the last two-minute report. We have, you know, like the, the reviews, the challenge, all of that. How, how, do you, how, does, how does one navigate that? Does it, does it creep into, I mean, and you see it with the people that you work with in the SEC. How do you navigate that 
so the game is still called in its purest form and not, well, if I get it wrong, it's okay, the replay will fix it. Or uh, I mean, you want to get it right, but, but how do you navigate the game to still call it in its purest form, Bob? Yeah, um, so if you go back to when the two-minute report came in, anytime change comes, people usually get a little jumpy. And uh, I was the director of officials at the time. Mike Bantam was the executive vice president uh, for referee operations. And once that decision was made that that was going to take place, Mike and I were the ones that would evaluate the last two minutes for that first year when we were doing that data gathering. And, um, you know, and the reality is nobody shows up at an airport to watch planes land safely. Well, maybe some people, but if, if there is any kind of problem, the whole world's there to watch and report on it. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the last two minute report, right? The last two minute report, you can go to 90 some percent and the calls are correctly made in the last two minutes. But if one is just missed, it's going to cause an issue. So the reality was that I also found that to be extremely helpful because uh, from a management standpoint, you're able to watch people in high stressful situations. You're also able to see positioning and um, there's always a why and a how, why do we miss the call and how can we correct it? And, uh, but the why and the how I think has to be on that other 90 some percent. Correct. So let's just for argument's sake, say that the referees are making 92% according to the data of correct calls when they blow their whistle. Well, I would always ask them to go to the, about three or four calls that they know were tough calls, but they got it right. And look at those to reinforce why you got it right and how you can repeat that. Because if we go chasing just that other 6 to 8%, we're going to lose a part of the 92%. So mm. I wanted to positive reinforce. And then go and look at the play that you've missed and say, why did I miss it? How can we adjust to be able to get it next time? And because these plays are going to happen over and over and over. And so it, it usually comes down to open looks. It usually comes down to positioning, where the referee's eyes are looking, all those kinds of things. The data helps you with that from a management standpoint. You're getting data information that you, you take. Now, I will say that the amount of data that is gathered, not all of it I would share with officials because I think you can paralyze people who are in positions for that they have to be reactive. It, they got to react to the plays that are going on. It, 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 it matters not what you think the play is going to be when you're coming out of a timeout. You have to be ready for whatever comes at you. It's not like the team comes over to us and gives us the play. So if you predispose yourself to say, oh, they're probably going to run this and they're going to run that, you've got a self-fulfilling prophecy going on, and you're going to be seeing that before it happens. So you've got to clear your mind. Etch-a-sketch keeps coming back, baby. Etch-a-sketch. <laughs> yes, you keep yes. your mind clear. You keep situations clear. You referee better. So, so Bob, let me let – me use this as a bit of a segue and I, I i say this and ask this respectfully to those that i'm about to discuss you've done a ton of work you've told us about this in the past but you've continued to do work with uh current and former uh 
members of law enforcement and soldiers, and now the the work that you've done, the interviews that you've done with members of the frontline staff, doctors and nurses and, and whatnot, uh, for a new book that, that's out, Heroes Are Human. And, folks, you can get it, uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble in the States. I'm sure it's uh, available here in Canada on Indigo and, and wherever you get your books. Again, the, the book that Bob has written, uh, Heroes Are Human, uh, dealing with firsthand accounts from COVID, of COVID, from the front lines, people dealing with COVID. But using that, Bob, as a loose sort of connection here, the stress that's involved for an official, the stress that's involved for a professional athlete, especially these last few years, the, the, the added stress of COVID and the pandemic and, and everything else that has gone along with it. And also, Bob, this is something that Jonesy and I have discussed many times, that we are guilty at times of forgetting at the end of the day, hey, these refs, just like Paul and I, like you, just like the players, they got lies. They got things happen at home. They got a sick kid. They've got a sick parent. They've got a spouse that's unhappy or there's something going on in their lives. And then you're supposed to show up and just check that all at the door and put your blinders on and call the game and or play the game and have zero impact from your personal life on those two, three hours of professional life. And that's sometimes or many times easier said than done. So we also have to remember the officials are human and, and whatnot. And I, again, I'm kind of giving you a bit of a word salad here, but there's a lot going on with a lot of people that we are guilty sometimes of not acknowledging, and maybe it needs to be front of mind, not just back of mind more often than not. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I, 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 I've been doing work in the area of post-traumatic stress for the past four decades, parallel to my careers in law enforcement and in uh, the NBA. And uh, as, as you mentioned, it started out doing – after my long-term undercover job, I was dealing with post-traumatic stress. Basketball became my therapy. And um, I, I shared my story in the book, Covert, my years infiltrating the mob, and have been speaking with military members visiting Iraq and Afghanistan when they were there um, during, during those wars. And, and even to this day, speak with Special Forces troops. Um, this weekend, I'll be with a Green Beret a unit that is on a retreat with their families and talking about this kind of subject. It's, it, it's a human condition. We are all susceptible. I, you know, post-trauma has been around forever. It, it, you know, Sophocles wrote two plays about the warrior not knowing how to act after coming home from battle. After the Civil War, we refer to it as soldier's heart. After World War One, it was shell shock. World War II was battle fatigue. Vietnam, Korean Wars, it was referred to as flashbacks. Now it's post-traumatic stress disorder. And PTSD is probably the most loosely used term in our society because, folks, you do not get PTSD when Starbucks gets your order wrong. But we throw it around and we push that word out as if it's just it, it, it's commonplace today that that post-trauma uh, stress disorder is a diagnosis. So there is post-trauma prior to the diagnosis, which I refer to as operational stress. You guys have operational stress. It's the stress of the job. It, 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 and so I, I take a look and, 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 and share those human emotions with the soldiers. And, and having been, my boots are not their boots, but I go where their boots go. So I get an understanding of what their world is like. And I'm able to make analogies and draw parallels and, and be able to flesh out this conversation to normalize the conversation about trauma. And we are making inroads. We're making changes. You think about uh, a small win in, in, in this kind of area, Simone Biles. Simone Biles 
would have been vilified years ago had she not competed because she would have been looked upon as unpatriotic and should have toughened it out. And yet society was understanding when we became educated to what twisties meant and understanding that this young woman, 12 to 15 feet in the air, jumping around and twisting and then coming down to land, she didn't feel comfortable. Society has moved the bar. We've got a long way to go. But understanding that uh, (laughs) that's the reason I called the last book Heroes Are Human. Heroes are human because uh, human beings do heroic things, but it's really just ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And the other book that I wrote is called Surviving the Shadows, A Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress. The reason I called it Surviving the Shadows is I believe we all have shadows in life. They come into our lives. Uh, But never be afraid of a shadow because in order for a shadow to exist, that means there's light nearby. And it's our responsibility to ourselves and to each other to get to that light. I do work with the Harvard Global Mental Health Trauma Recovery Program. I was a student there uh, in their program, and and now I present at at the program. And Dr. Richard Malika is a mentor, a friend, and he's the director of the Harvard Global Mental Health Trauma Recovery. He has a very simple statement. He said trauma is inescapable in life. And how true. We are all susceptible. Human nature. It goes on after earthquakes. It goes on, it goes on with a banking uh, situation that just happened in California. Think about the trauma and the stress of the people whose money is there and how they're feeling. And so it's happening with the floods in California. It happens, and it happens as a result of war. It happens as a result of other situations as well. Understanding that we're human beings allows us to be a little bit more understanding of each other. But when you get into a competitive uh, situation like a NBA basketball game, that kind of fades away because the expectation is perfection. And what is happening is every player and every coach interprets your call as a referee as getting in the way of their win. So it's the will to win that consistently comes back to you. Bob, um, I, I, look, we're, we're, we're just about done here, but I, I, I wanted to make a comment around, uh, you know, your, your analogy about the shadows um, and, and the light, because, yeah, you're right. To have a shadow, there has to be light somewhere. And I just, I think back to the part of your book, Covert, where, um, and I, it's not a spoiler alert because people know the story and you're still around and that's great. But when you stood on the court... <laughs> In, in Phoenix, and somebody whispered a catchphrase or a key line that had you think right away, this is it. They're going to take me down right here in the middle of America West Arena in front of all these people. And I just, I just think about all you've said and contextualizing that and thinking how you must have felt at that minute when you thought with everything that, that's gone through your past, there you were standing on the court and you heard that, that shadow, that voice right behind you. What was going through your mind at that time? Did you think, man, this is it? Is, is it going to happen right here, right out in the open? Uh, I, I mean, it, that, that, that kind of thought um, has been around for a long time with me after I surfaced from doing the undercover work. I stayed in the state police for an additional 10 years after I surfaced, surfaced before um, 
you know, basketball became my therapy and opened the doors for the NBA. But when I was at, at the American West uh, in the opening of the book, I was sharing the story of the informant who was on relocation it was a guy by the name of Fat Kelly, and he was sitting courtside. And um, he was the one that was yelling out to me some words. And I'm like, I'm not seeing him or recognizing him because he changed his look. And I'm thinking, is this like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, I always felt like I was hiding in plain sight out on a basketball floor. So there's a lot yeah. of quick blood that runs through your body. Real, You know, you, you keep that look of uh, stoic and in control. But the blood is running through your body real quick. And so uh, I wanted to share that with folks because I think we all have those. This is what, what happens so many times, Jonesy, is that when I talk to soldiers, cops, firefighters, everyday folks, they'll say, I feel like you're speaking directly to me. And I said, because it's not only my story, it's our story. It's a story of human emotions. It's a story of humanity. And so we all have what is personal is universal. If you're feeling something, I probably felt it, too. And so when we share that honest feeling with each other, we kind of like take control of those emotions versus letting the emotions take control of us. Bob, always love chatting with you. We could go for another 30 minutes. Um, one of these days, maybe we will. We'll just well, have you on. You guys know I like for, to talk, yeah. man. Yeah. You guys know yeah. I like to talk. I do 15 minutes at home when the refrigerator light goes on. <laughs> 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 uh, Bob, we we love having you on, and you're you're welcome anytime. And again, folks, make sure you check out uh, the new book as well. Heroes are human. Um, fantastic stuff, Bob, and look forward to having you on again soon. All the best. Great to talk to you, Bob. Stay safe. What a fantastic conversation, Jonesy, with former NBA ref, nearly two thousand games officiated total when we talk about playoffs and regular season with Bob Delaney. And again, folks, make sure you check out his book. I gave you all the details on Amazon, etc., where you can find not just his latest book, but the three books that he has written. And uh, always love chatting with Bob Delaney. That's going to do it for the latest edition of Smith & Jones. Austin Mackey, Mark Boffo, of course, we always appreciate their time, their skill, their effort on the show. And we appreciate all of you tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones. Download it. Subscribe to it. Rate it, review it on all your favorite podcast platforms, and we will be back next week with another edition of Smith & Jones.